As Adam mentioned, we're in First Peter, starting in chapter four, so we're moving at a torrid clip through the book right now. So we're gonna, <laughs> just kidding. So, <laughs> David knows we're not. So, First uh, Peter is about uh, it focuses a great deal on on the subject of suffering, and Peter talked about submission, and uh, uh, talked about. Servants to their masters, wives to their husbands, everyone submitting to the government. And Peter talked about how we need to be righteous people, that the Lord, his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, calling us to be righteous. And I want to pick up the story in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start off by reading verses 1 to 6. I'm reading from New King James Version. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So, um, so Peter starts up. He says, "Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh is is done with sin." So the so he's talking about suffering here, and um, this really is this idea of suffering. Uh, I counted in the book here, in, in, in my translation, I think I counted 16 times that the word shows up in this short letter. Peter talks about suffer, suffered, suffering. Some form of the word suffer shows up there in a short letter. Uh, just some excerpts here. Just, and it's for every chapter of the book. It's from chapter 1, he's speaking about the prophets, and he said the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. So he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. From chapter 2, when he's addressing servants, Peter says, It's commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 21 to 23, he says, To this you were called because Christ also suffered for us Leading, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, in chapter 3, it says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And, and uh, chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ 
also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. So, so suffering, <laughs> chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Chapter 4, it's mentioned five or six times, depending on what translation you've got. And we just saw it twice here already in chapter 4. So, uh, uh, in the reason why in our house church we do more expository teaching than most places, maybe about 98% of places we do, we do a lot of expository teaching here. And one of the reasons we like to do expository teaching is so that all of us together will become better readers of the Word of God, me included. This is good for me, and I think it's good for all of us to learn how to read a passage of Scripture and understand it, or a book, or, and what it's talking about. You know, the old adage, teach a man, uh, give a man a fish, and you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you'll feed him for a lifetime. So what we want to do is we want to become great fishermen, we want to become great miners of the Word of God, all of us. And in studying any book of the Bible, there's good questions that all of us should ask. Questions like, what's the overarching theme of this book or letter? Uh, why did the author write it? What's, how does the author support the main point that he's trying to make? And are there any key words or phrases in the book? And right, just for what we've covered so far, I think we can answer with this letter all of these questions we can see for ourselves. The main theme of 1 Peter is, take a wild guess what it might possibly be, is suffering. The main theme is saying, why in the world are you, you why'd you pick this book to, to, to study about suffering? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We'll answer that question. But it's about suffering. Uh, Peter talks about it from, from beginning to end. That's the main theme. And it's also the key word because it appears so many times in the text here. Uh, who's Peter writing to? Well, he's writing to people who are already Christians. He's addressing people already Christians and who've come from Gentile backgrounds predominantly. How do we know that? What we just read right here. He says, We've spent enough time in our past lifetimes in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, Peter, we know Peter was not involved in idolatry personally. Peter, Acts chapter 10, he wouldn't even eat in the homes of Gentiles. So Peter wasn't living, but he's speaking. He's speaking. He's throwing himself in with everybody else, with all the people he's speaking to. You know, we all lived like this in the past uh, so, so he's speaking to people who are Gentiles, predominantly, who've come out of a, a life of being involved in the same sins everybody else in the world around them <clears throat> was involved in. Uh, and the points, so the next question is, how does Peter, he's talking about suffering, while well, we need to be prepared to suffer. <clears throat> he talks about how we should be prepared to suffer, how to suffer well in life. And how does Peter make his points that he's making here? He doesn't just say, I'm Peter and listen to what I say because I'm an apostle of Jesus. He gives a reason for everything that he does. Uh, one thing that I noticed that he does, it's funny because Peter, I, don't, I can't think of any place in this letter where Peter quotes Jesus, which is, I think, well, that's kind of unusual. Peter doesn't, he doesn't quote Jesus, but he's talking about him all the time throughout his letter. He's talking about the life of Jesus, how Jesus lived. And he's pointing us to the life of Christ, not just his teachings. 
Uh, so he's pointing to the life of Christ, and he says, Christ suffered and then entered into his glory. That's what he did. That's the way he lived his life. And he suffered. When he suffered, he didn't complain. <clears throat> he didn't revile. He didn't retaliate when he was suffering. And he was righteous, although, the, although he was suffered. He was rejected by men. So he's talking about all these things about Jesus. This is how he lives. So he points to the example of Jesus and backing up the points that he's making. The other thing he points to is the Old Testament. Peter quotes from all over the Old Testament. And keep in mind, he's writing to people who came out of Gentile backgrounds. But he's quoting from all over the Old Testament to back up his points. Um, and uh, he's drawing from a wide range of books. And he's, he's, he's using it in the Old Testament a variety of ways. He's using... Western-style prophecies, like from Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he committed no sin, no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he's talking about Jesus and how he lived, he goes back to Isaiah 53. But he also uses a number of Eastern-style, allegorical-style prophecies. He's talking about Christ as being like the rock. He uses three examples of that. He says he is the lamb without blemish, pointing back to the Passover lamb. He's talking to the Christians that says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, which goes back to the words that God gave at Mount Sinai to the Israelites. So he's using all these examples. He's using the, the straightforward type prophecies, the allegorical type prophecies. He's using the... Uh, and, he, and he's also using Psalms and Proverbs. Now, a lot of people don't take the Proverbs very seriously as a spiritual book. You know, you say, what are you studying the Bible? I'm studying the Proverbs. Well, you just you just went down two or three notches in my estimation of how spiritual it is. You know, you know, it's not like you're studying the Gospels or you're studying Romans. Peter quotes three times from the Proverbs here. So Peter thought the Proverbs were very important. He uses it, Psalms and the Proverbs, he uses teaching in there to, to back up the idea you need to be living a righteous life that you need to be a humble person. God opposes the proud and, and, and blesses, gives grace to the humble. And he answers the prayers right. So Peter uses Psalms and Proverbs to support the way, in a very practical way, saying here's how we need to live as Christians. And he also uses examples. And he, I think of the example of, uh, he uses examples of, of people in the Old Testament, it, not only using Jesus, but also using the example from the Old Testament, but also using the example of Sarah, when he's pointing out how wives need to live. So Peter, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful to see all the ways that Peter uses pointing to the life of Christ and pointing to all different ways he uses the Old Testament to back up everything that he's saying. I think we can learn something from that. Uh, the importance of the Old Testament and using it in all these ways for very practical. Peter, First Peter is an extremely practical letter. So back to the question, why in the world are we looking at a book on suffering? Who wants to suffer? Is anybody here, say, anybody here volunteering for who wants to suffer? No, most of us, we don't really want to suffer. Uh, and I think there's, the, the uh, I look at, look at the, the, the people that I've met in life, and I can put them in two categories, the people who, uh, will embrace some degree of suffering voluntarily. These are the people who run the Boston Marathon, okay? The people who row in the head of the Charles or the the crash the crash B sprints, which is a, a strange uh, a, 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 a row basically a rowing a torture event. So so 
But I know there are a few people who, who, are, who are geared toward that, but 90% of the people don't want to do anything like that, that that's really painful. So you always think, are, are, are we masochists here that we, we want to focus on suffering? I mean, hardly anybody uh, wants to do that. Well, Peter says, he says, you need to arm yourselves with this mind, with this mindset. So Peter, Peter's using like military battle language. The picture is you're in a war, but you're not in a war that's using uh, guns and cannons and rockets and all these, the normal, the, the normal with swords. It's, it's not that kind of a war. You're in a different kind of a war and you're, up, you're going up against a different kind of enemy. And in order for the, to enter into this war, that you need to have your mind in the right place. Your mind and your heart are the, one, are the parts of you that need the armaments and the weapons to do this. And it says, just as Christ suffered, you need to arm yourselves with the same mentality, the same attitude. You know, the Christians are... Uh, the Christians who take the, the Bible seriously, pick, who take the Sermon on the Mount seriously and literally, we understand that we don't take up weapons, that we turn the other cheek, that uh, the, the, ch- the church in the first 300 years, the Christians had nothing to do with, uh, with uh, killing other people, even in, in the military, they wouldn't do things like that. Uh, but, but you can get the idea that Christians are all just a bunch of pacifists and... and, and it's like, no, that's not exactly right either. Christians are called to be warriors, but it's a different war against a different enemy and using different weapons. And here he says you need to arm yourselves with this attitude. Christ suffered uh, suffered first and then entered into his glory, and you need to have the same mentality of being prepared to do that of inwardly equipping yourself to have this inward spiritual toughness that you're willing to suffer. And here he says specifically, you need to be willing to suffer in the flesh to be done with sin, so that sin and Satan will not gain mastery over us. So that's that's the reason that Peter gives. Now, uh, many of us here in the U.S., are sold, you know, you, you, you attend churches or you listen to uh, gospel preaching on the radio, and uh, what passes for the gospel is really a false bill of goods. Uh, what people are told in general is, they're not told you need to suffer, they're told God loves you. And in fact, he loves you so much that he wants to bless you and give you a happy, comfortable, prosperous life. So become a Christian and you're going to get all these wonderful things. Now, there's nothing about that in Peter's letter. Peter's talking about suffering in all these different ways, suffering in the flesh, suffering under the, under, uh, uh, in submission. Uh, it, it, he's talking about suffering. Now, how in the world do churches get to, so far away from the gospel as Peter, the top disciple of Jesus, understood? I think, I think it's very easy what happens is American churches are influenced by the successful organizations around us. So what's the, the most successful organization in American society are big biz, big corporations, okay? And what do the big corporations do? Well, big corporations are into marketing. 
Well, how do you market? You do some market research and you find out what do people want and then you take the product you have and you pitch it in a way that makes them feel like this is giving them what they want. That's basic corporate marketing. So the church is living in a, in a world where we're surrounded by successful corporations. Think, hey, let's try that out. That seems to work for all of them. So let's do a little re market research and find out what people want. Well, what are people today feeling in modern America? They're feeling alienated, isolated. They want friends. They want community. They want love, involvement. These are the things that people are looking for. Or, uh, you know, maybe they want programs. They're out of shape. They need, they need a, a, you know, they need a little, a little health, some exercise. They need help with their finances or in their marriage or parenting. They need a, a, a nice group of friends for their children to play with. These are the things that most people in America around here are looking for. So what do the churches do? They push all these programs to do this. And the gospel message that they preach is, we're going we're gonna to meet all of your needs with the gospel. That's basically, that's how you get there. Um, and so that's where you end up with mega churches and churches that have all these programs that meet people's felt needs and various forms of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel in, in the most blatant, ridiculous form is, you become a Christian and God's going to bless you, you're going to become rich. Okay, that's, that's totally, that's totally, that's obviously, uh, that's obviously completely phony gospel. But even a watered down version of that, which is, if you become a Christian, your life is going to become better. Now, having spent some time in the Middle East, I'm, I'm very much aware that that is absolute nonsense in most of the world. The idea, if you become a Christian... Let's say you're from, uh, from Iran, you're from Turkey, you're from China, you're from Saudi Arabia. The idea that your life is going to become better if you become a Christian is ridiculous. And, and honestly, throughout most of history, that's been the way it is. In the beginning, the first 300 years of the church, the Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. But in the East and Asia, they were, they were kind of left alone. And then things switched around. So every once in a while... Things will flip. It's like the like the magnetic north, you know, the idea that it all of a sudden everything flips all of a sudden. So things things will flip in terms of one part of the world there's persecution and then and then it flips the other way. The same thing happened in the Soviet Union, where in Russia was a Christian country, then after Marxism, uh, Christians were repressed, and then Marxism was taken away, and in some ways uh, Russia seems like a more Christian country than than the United States is. We'll see how that plays out. But uh, so these things can change over time. So Peter says we need to follow the example of Jesus. If we're following Jesus, we need to follow his life, follow his, well, obviously we have to follow his teaching, we have to follow his life example, which is he was rejected by people. Uh, you know, he submitted to the authorities that, that, that he was under. We have to do that. We have to pre be prepared to be rejected by people. We have to submit to the authorities that, that, are, that are, are, are over us in life. Uh, we have to be righteous in the face of challenges. We can't revile. We can't complain. We can't retaliate. That Jesus didn't do any of those things when he was badly treated. And now Peter adds to that here. He says we must suffer in the flesh by denying the immoral pleasures that all the Gentiles around them are going after and that they used to go after in their own lives. And he starts with the big one. He starts with sexual immorality. He starts with the lusts of the flesh, 
Lewdness. Okay, she starts off with that. This is this is the big one for a lot of people. It's, it's constantly following the news. There's constantly scandals breaking out where somebody got snagged in some kind of uh, gross, immoral thing where they're they're cheating on their spouse. There's fornication. There's uh, you know, uh, uh, of all different different types. This is this has been throughout history that uh, this has been a common sin that people are falling into. I think for for us here, uh, the the internet is a great opportunity. We're using the internet to spread the gospel around. On the other hand, Satan makes use of the internet too. He's got he's got a lot of uh, territory in the internet, and Satan will use the internet to make pornography extremely easy and accessible, easy to get to. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, uh, th- this scares me to death, okay, be, be honest with you. Is that, like, I am very vigilant about this temptation, about this sin, because I know how enslaving it can be. Uh, from... Long time ago in my past, before I became a Christian, I was, I was, this is even before, before the, the internet was much, much around there. I know how enslaving this sin can be, how dangerous it is. And so I treat this like a snake. I treat it like high voltage electricity, meaning I don't want to go anywhere near it. I don't want to, I don't want to play with it. I don't want to go anywhere near it. It's dangerous. It's going to bite me. It's going to mess me up. So, so, uh, uh, this is an area where Satan is always attacking us in this area. And I, w- I want to just include, uh, encourage you for, 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 for women, but especially for men too, is just to, to take a look at the last week, the last month of your life, and say, how are you doing in this area? Are you keeping away from these sins of the world, these sins of the flesh? Because as Peter says, you're going to have to deny your flesh. This is a form of suffering, of saying no to the flesh. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to be diving after that kind of pleasure in life. And then he adds drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. And two of the things that I noticed during this, this uh, you know, all the lockdown and, and, and the pandemic stuff. One is people are on the internet a lot more, so there's more temptation for internet pornography. And the other one is people are drinking a lot more. They're 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 going back, they're bored, and so they turn to alcohol. Maybe they had a problem with alcohol in the past, but they let go of it, but they start to drift back into alcohol or abusing uh, abusing drugs in, in one form or another prescription drugs, or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's a good, sober reminder for us that we have to, this is part of the suffering that we have to expect to go through. It's suffering of telling our bodies, our flesh, no, you're not going to do that, or no, we're not going to do that. You know, your spirit talking to your body says, we're not going there, and saying no, and putting putting up with the uh, the pain and discomfort that's involved with that. Uh because as Peter reminds us that the Gentiles who are living this way will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This is Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, ready to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back and all are going to be judged in front of him. So with that in mind, 
That should, that should sober us up to be serious about the way we're living our lives. And Peter also says, he says, the gospel was preached to those who were dead. And this, this came up last week. Somebody was asking in, connect, in connection with the study that we did about Christ going and preaching the spirits in prison about, uh, about where, what Jesus did between the time that he died and was resurrected. So what do you think that means? When it says he, he, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Uh, what is he referring to? Let me let's read the whole the whole statement there. First uh, Peter four six. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Okay, so think about that. I came up with four possibilities. Maybe there's more than that, but that's I, I was thinking about this. What does this mean? I looked at, I looked to the early Christians. Early Christian writers, the first 300 years, and uh, nothing. There would, no one commented on it in a way that that would make it clear what they thought it meant. So, I just have to wrestle with the text and other scriptures to see if, if we can come up with, with some idea here. So, uh, now one question I always ask is when Jesus, when when the Bible talks about death or sleep, okay. There's a lot of times the question is, are they talking literally or figuratively? And sometimes it talks about someone sleeping, and it means they're, you know, they're they're, they're lying down, they're shut, they're having some shut eye. Sometimes it talks about sleep. They're using it as a figurative or poetically referred to death. And the same thing when he's talking about death here. Uh, first possibility is Peter's talking about those who are dead. He's talking about. You know, from the time of Pentecost, when the gospel was first preached up until he writes this letter, he's talking about people, I mean, obviously some people have died. So is he talking about people who heard the gospel who have since died? That's one possibility. Another possibility is, as we as came up last week, it says that Jesus, when he, uh, when he died before he was resurrected, he went to Hades, where the, the spirits of the dead go, and he preached the spirits in prison. Is it referring to that? That those who those who lived before uh, Jesus uh, Jesus came to the earth, uh, or is it speaking in a figurative sense? Uh, for example, when Jesus said in Matthew eight twenty two, he said, "Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead." He says, obviously, he's speaking, "Let the dead bury their dead." You can figure out in your mind the first dead who's doing the bearing, that has to be figuratively, and the second dead is, is literally. So Jesus will do that. He'll use the same word in different senses and force force the meaning out in the way that he uses the expression. So, or uh, <clears throat> in Ephesians 2, 1, it says, He made you alive who were dead in trans and, and, and tra- trespasses and sins. The idea is you're being dead, dead in your sins. Uh, another way that it could be referring to it could be spiritual people who are spiritually dead because of sin the other possibility he may be speaking of those who who in following christ have voluntarily put sin to death that, that we see that in scriptures also second uh, timothy 2 11 it says this is a faithful saying if we died with him we shall also live with him. So this is, uh, you're talking about people who've died. So it's, it's used in that sense. Paul used it the same way in Romans chapter 6. is referring to Christians are people who have died 
but it's talking about spiritually they've died to sin, to live for a new life. <clears throat> so let's continue here in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister to one, to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. And in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, Peter here, Talks about in the midst of this life where we're prepared to suffer, <clears throat> we need to do four things. And he says, you need to be serious and watchful in prayer. Love one another with a fervent love. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And then he says, use whatever gifts you've been given to minister to one another as good stewards of what God has given you. And then he mentions a few of those gifts. Mm-hmm. So those are the four things. Serious and watchful in prayer, fervent love for each other, hospitable to one another without grumbling, and using your gifts as, as good stewards of what God has given you. Those are the four things. So I want to take a look at those. <clears throat> so he says, be serious and watchful in prayer. Now this, ex- this ex- expression, watch and watchful in prayer, is one that shows up a few places in Scripture. Jesus uses it as well. Uh, Psalm 5, let's let's turn there, verses 1 to 4. This is the first one I think of. I'm reading this from the Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, the Old Testament. This is from David talking about his own prayer. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, hear my cry. Give heed to the voice of my supplication, my King and my God. For to you I will pray, O Lord. In the morning you shall hear my voice. In the morning I will stand before you and I will watch. So this idea of David saying he's going to stand before the Lord in prayer and he's going to watch. Mm. Okay, let's, so I want to look at a few verses to talk about watching, and let's try to piece together what this looks like. What does this really mean? <clears throat> In Matthew 24, there are a lot of references to watching and connection with prayer at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 24, starting at verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. This is the return of Jesus. But as in the days of Noah were, so also be in the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, another left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, another left. 
Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So he's talking about watching, and he gives the illustration here of someone who is watching that, that a thief not enter into his house. So it's just, just, he gives us some pictures, I think, which, which help us to understand what this means. He says, I'm coming back. You need to watch just like a man who's watching to make sure his house doesn't get uh, burglarized. Jesus makes the same point at the end of the parable of the ten virgins. There are the, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. Vir, I'm sorry, virgins. And he, his conclusion to that, this is, this is the bottom line, the takeaway from telling that is, in Matthew 25, 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You need to watch and be prepared that he can come at any time. When Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he's, he tells, he asks the disciples to watch and pray with him. He says, watch that you not fall into, watch and pray that you not fall into temptation. Then in Mark 13, this is a general cry a general call that Jesus makes, which applies to everybody. It's not just the apostles. In Mark 13, starting in verse 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, or the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Um, Although the word watch isn't in the next passage, to me it conveys the same sense. It's something Paul has in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's turn there. So I'm about the same subject using a little different words, but I think to me this gives, gives more appreciation for what, what he's talking about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you like a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But those who are of the day are sober, 
putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So, so putting all this together, when he says you need to watch and pray, uh, what does that mean? It's putting all this together. I get the idea that Jesus can return at any point in time. And like a doorkeeper who's left, or like someone who's anticipating a thief, a thief who could come at the night or any time, we have to have an attitude of very serious, focused prayer, the opposite of being lazy and complacent. We have to be diligent, being ready for the return of Jesus, being spiritually sharp and ready for the return of Jesus at any time, and watching for him to come. I get the idea of a watchman who's guarding a city or someone who's watching their house or or the master has left and you're you're watching the door waiting for him to come back. That's that's the sense here. So uh, Peter says we need to be serious and watchful in prayer. That's the kind of prayer life that we need to have, waiting for the return of Jesus, praying for his kingdom to come. The next thing that Peter says is that we have to have a fervent love for one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. And here Peter's quoting from uh, the Proverbs again. Uh, uh, Love covers over a multitude of sins from uh, Proverbs chapter 10. And Peter uses the expression, says, above all things, have a fervent love. So the attitude is, this is the most important thing. Above everything else, this is the most important thing. You have to love each other. I mean, that's, isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? He says, of all the things, of all the good things that Christians can do, of giving your gifts, giving things to the poor, surrendering your body to the flames as a martyr, he says, without love, you gain nothing. Love is... The most excellent way. It's the most excellent thing. Now, Peter's saying the same thing here. He's not using as many words. He's not doing as poetically. But that's what he's saying. Love's the most important thing. You need to love each other fervently because love covers over a multitude of sins. I wanted to share with you uh, one of the earliest Christian writings outside the Bible. I'm always interested in how... Did the Christians in the very beginning understand the faith? What did they see as the most important thing? What was the church, what were the Christians like in the very beginning? So this is Clement of Rome, who I believe is early enough to actually personally know some of the apostles. And this is from an epistle called the First Clement. It says, so just give you an idea of the importance of love to the Christians in the beginning. It says, Let him who has love in Christ keep the commandments of Christ. Who can describe the bond of the love of God? What man is able to tell the excellence of his beauty as it ought to be told? The height to which love exalts is unspeakable. Love unites us to God. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things. It's long-suffering in all things. There's nothing base, nothing arrogant in love. Love admits no schisms. This is, you know, division in the body, in the body of Christ. Love gives rise to no sedition. 
Love does all things in harmony. By love have all the elect of God been made perfect. Without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. In love has the Lord taken us to himself. On account of love he bore us. Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God, his flesh for our flesh, and his soul for our souls. You see, beloved, how great and wonderful a thing is love, and that there is no declaring its perfection. Who is fit to be found in it except such as God has vouchsafed to render so? Let us pray, therefore, and implore of his mercy that we may live blameless in love, free from all human partialities for one another. All the generations from Adam even to this day have passed away. But those who through the grace of God have been made perfect in love now possess a place among the godly and shall be manifest at the revelation of the kingdom of Christ. I mean, this is, this is a beautiful expression about saying, look, love is the most important thing. God is love. And Jesus demonstrated his love for us by laying his life down. He showed us by his life the example of love the way he wants us to live. And he says, this, Peter says, this is the most important thing. You've got to be loving each other, putting the love of God into practice in your lives. It's a wonderful reminder. And we see it all over the scriptures, all, all over the New Testament. I remember when we were in, uh, 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 Alice and I were in the Middle East uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I was speaking with some refugees from Iran, where the Christians are very heavily persecuted. And, so I was saying, you know, how did you ever, you grew up a Muslim, how did you become a Christian? And he says, well, he said, in Iran, they respect, the Muslims respect Jesus as a great prophet, but he's known as the prophet of love. Of all the prophets, he's the one that talked the most about love. He's the one who was the most loving and kind. And, uh, so, you know, Muhammad was kind of severe, but Jesus is the prophet of love. So he said, even in, in Muslim countries, people have a great respect for, for Jesus. And he says, the love of the Christians drew people to the gospel. So he said, you know, the Christians are more loving than all the other people in, in the country. He was seeing that there. And so he said, they, they told me that this is what drew them into at least checking it out to find out if what they were what they were preaching was true or not, at least got their attention to check it out to seek the truth, the, the love that they saw among the Christians. The third thing Peter says is offer hospitality without grumbling. Um, I think we have, honestly, I think in the group here, we have uh, many, especially among the sisters, who excel in offering hospitality, open up their homes, People to stay there, people to have meals, and uh, uh, this, this is a, it's a wonderful strength, and this is an indication of showing the love of God to one another and to other people. And he says, uh, it also reminds me of the passage in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So, and it says, it says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, 
those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. So the picture here is, he's saying, don't forget to entertain strangers. Don't just hang out with your own, the people you know and your own family and friends. You need to be showing love to people you don't even know. You should be entertaining strangers to, 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 to reflect that. And then there's a the statement here that says uh, uh, that some have unwittingly entertained angels. That angels can take on human form. And there are several places in the scriptures where angels will take on human form. People didn't realize the, the, the example of the people who had lunch came to have, two of the people who came to have lunch with Abraham is one, but not the only one where angels would, would appear and uh, look just like people. So I don't know if any of us have ever done that or if that's happening today or not, but uh, we're reminded in Hebrews that, you know, let's, let's show love to, to strangers because there, there may be some angels operating on the face of the earth and we want to definitely... Uh, show show love and kindness to uh, to them as well, uh, and then the other part of this here, which could be easily overlooked, it says offer hospitality without grumbling. Now, in First Corinthians chapter ten, this is a story about how the whole journey through the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the Christian life, and it mentions four sins. Uh, uh, by which the people were disqualified and never made it to the promised land. Okay, one of them, sexual immorality, no surprise. One of them is idolatry. One of them is testing the Lord. We're not going to talk about about that today. And then the fourth one was murmuring, complaining, grumbling. Okay, and we tend not to think of that as a big sin. As a serious sin, we was, we wouldn't we would normally would rank that with immorality. But God's the point that He's making there is: look, this is a, this is a big deal. Not only do you need to do what's good, but you need to control your tongue and not complain about everything. I think of the scripture Philippians two fourteen. Let's let's take a look at that. This one, honestly, I think this is one of the hardest scriptures in the Bible to follow. I, I, I want to challenge everybody to follow this for one day, okay? Do this for one day. And then after you do that, do it for another one after that. See how long you keep it going. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so I may rejoice in the day of Christ. I've not run in vain or labored in vain. So it's the same thing. It's the implication is, hey, if you're going to, if you're just to be complaining, Paul's going to say, hey, I've run my, I, I was doing, pouring out my work in vain. You just became a bunch of complainers. So uh, this is a sin. I think we, I think we tolerate too much, honestly. In, 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 among ourselves, we we don't treat this as seriously as God does. The sin of complaining, as we're serving other people, don't Paul says, don't complain about anything. Do everything without complaining. Okay. My, my wife Allison is in the room here. I would I would say I would say to Allison, I'll say it right now. She's freaking here in front of everybody. If you ever hear me complaining about anything, please. 
lovingly and respectfully <laughs> remind me about this verse right here because I don't want to be a complainer. And I would encourage all spouses, all roommates to, to, to do the same thing. Meaning by that, tell your roommate or your spouse, tell, tell your spouse that if they ever see you complaining, Please point it out to them. I think I think the sooner we uproot this sin out of our lives, the better the better off we're going to be. Yeah. So let's take let's take this this seriously. We want to not only to offer hospitality, but offer hospitality without grumbling, and do everything, any form of service that we do without without grumbling, complaining. And the fourth thing that Peter calls us to do here. He says, whatever gifts that God has given you, use them to minister to others as stewards, as faithful stewards of God. The picture is, if you have anything, if you have a house, if you have money, if you have um, wisdom, if you have an ability to teach other people, whatever you have, that God, whatever you have, the picture is God has entrusted you with this gift you are just a steward that's all you are and you would need to be a faithful steward to use that gift as the master who gave it intended you okay this isn't for you to think you're better than somebody else who may have different gifts than you do or to think that you're worse than somebody else because they have different gifts than you do that's not it at all is that god distributed the gifts so we just need to be faithful to God and put them into, into practice. So I would encourage everyone here, take inventory of, okay, what has God given me in this life? First of all, what has God given me? And then next thing is, all right, what am I doing with what God has given me? Am I putting this to work to build up the body of Christ and to advance the kingdom of God to meet the needs of others. Uh, this is not about comparing ourselves who's better, who's worse. We're all stewards, and, and God has blessed us all with different things. Let's use them in a way that builds up the body of Christ. So uh, I'm going to stop right there for, uh, for today, and we'll pick it up uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. Amen.